Calvinists often express the sovereignty and powerful works of God. But how do those who are non-Calvinists, particularly in the Molinist camp, view God's sovereignty? Catch this and a lot more on today's edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. And we welcome you to the Bellator Christie Podcast on this January 12th edition, 2018. And so we thank you for being with us today. We hope you're doing well wherever you may be. We do want to remind you that the Bellator Christie podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com. We do encourage you to go to the website, and while you're there, click subscribe. And by doing so, you'll receive all the articles uh, in your inbox and, as, uh, and links to this podcast in your inbox as soon as they become available. Uh, <clears throat> this past week, I posted an article that uh, was uh, took a lot of work, but uh, I think was uh, had a great payoff as far as uh, <clears throat> information that could uh, potentially help individuals. Uh, posted this, earlier this week a, uh, a, a an article uh, which is entitled the Re- a reference on biblical numerology, and uh, that is uh, that is to say that uh, the Bible uses uh, various numbers in symbolic fashions. That certain numbers throughout Scripture uh, ha- has a symbolic meaning, and so uh, we look at different numbers in that article. You can catch it. It's dated January 9th, twenty eighteen, and uh, we go through. Uh, discussing one through ten, uh, eleven has some some uh, representation. Some of these numbers have more. Uh, you can prove them more than others. Uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way through twenty. Um, actually, through twenty-five, and then uh, then the evidence. It seems to go off between 26 and 30, uh, then 30 and 33, 40, 42, 50, 70, 72 has some symbolic meaning, uh, the number 120. Uh, some people believe 153 may have uh, a, a uh, symbolic meaning as Jesus uh, caught 153 fish, or the disciples, that is, caught 153 fish uh, at, at uh, one of Jesus' resurrection appearances. 200 may imply certain things, 390, 400, of course, 666. Uh, 1,000 and 144,000. Uh, these are some of the numbers that are covered in this uh, in this article. And I do note that there are some numbers that hold greater <clears throat> evidence uh, for their symbolic meaning than others, and uh, we use certain uh, I use certain language to identify just that. So 
Anyhow, go check it out. It's the January 9th, 2018 edition of the Bellator Christie podcast. Go take a look at it if you're interested. Uh, I, th- I think it's, there's some good information there, and I hope you will find it useful as well. On today's podcast here in just a few moments, we're going to talk about uh, the sovereignty of God from a non-Calvinist perspective, and we'll talk about that here in just a few moments. Uh, but on today, but uh, before we get to that, uh, also, I just about forgot, just to let you know, you can take Bellator Christie with you on the go. Uh, our podcast is available on several apps. Uh, we're available on uh, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. So go check us out, subscribe, and you can take the podcast with you on the go. Uh, quite honestly, I subscribe to a lot of different podcasts, and uh, Reasonable Faith is one of them. I, I encourage you to go listen to them. Stand to Reason is another great podcast, and uh, there's several out there. There. So we do encourage you to go um, not only subscribe to this podcast, but look at some of the other podcasts that are out there. And I would encourage you to make a collection of podcasts uh, to take with you on the go. And it, um, if you walk or jog or something like that, that's a good way to pass the time. If you're walking on a treadmill to listen to some of these podcasts, and uh, hopefully uh, the Bellator Christie podcast will be one of them as well. Uh, before we get into... Uh, the main topic here, and this is actually a response uh, that we received to a question we received, or actually a suggestion we received by a guy named Jason, uh, who asked us if we could talk about God's sovereignty from a non-Calvinist perspective, and we will do just that in a few moments. But before we do, I want to uh, look at a couple of newsworthy items that we found, um, that I found just, just today. Also, let me just say one more thing. Uh, if if you haven't caught it this week, if you're on Facebook, if you're on social media, be sure to go to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary's page. They have been having a uh, they have had a an apologetics conference this week, and they've been posting all of the um, main speakers' presentations uh, on on their on their videos on videos live videos. On their webpage, the keynote speakers, that's what I'm trying to say. And uh, they have had some wonderful, wonderful speakers. Uh, Dr. Gary Habermas was on there this past week. Uh, he did just, a, he always does a stellar job. Of course, I'm partial him being a Liberty grad, and I mean, or not a Liberty grad, but a Liberty teacher. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of partial in that regard anyhow. But uh, in fact, they're actually live now as, uh, as I'm speaking. Bob Stewart's giving a presentation, uh, and this is a, on a Friday. So go check them out. Uh, they had a wonderful presentation last night uh, by a guy um, named, I was trying to see, catch his name here. He's a pastor up in um, up in uh, Detroit, and I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I didn't catch his name on this. Um, but anyhow, he does a fantastic, fantastic job talking about race relations. So anyhow, go check out the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. They have some great, great videos there, uh, and it'll be well worth your time and well worth uh, the investment of your time to check out these presentations as they do just a stellar job. And so go do that. We, we encourage you to do just that. Uh, but a couple other newsworthy items we have before uh, we get into the main topic today. I noticed uh, that... Um, there was a 
Um, let's see if I can pick it up here. I just had it. The Washington... Um, not sure why this is what this is doing here. Washington Examiner. See if I can get this. The WashingtonExaminer.com. Uh, according to a, a Pew report, this was posted on uh, J. Wesley Richards' uh, Twitter account. But um, he says Americans trust U.S. media less than ever, less than even Venezuelans and Turks trust their media. According uh, Pew, U.S. media bias ranks U.S. media the worst in the world. And let me see if I can pull this back up. Uh, I was having some trouble with it a while ago. Uh, it, says, it says, this comes from the Washington Examiner. More than any in any other country, Americans on both sides of the political aisle believe the media does a poor job covering political issues fairly, uh, according to a blockbuster new survey of media consumption in 38 nations. What's more, the Pew Research Center study found that supporters of President Trump believed the media is doing a worse job covering politics than the supporters of any other international political leader in countries surveyed. In fact, uh, they have a difference of uh, they they have a chart noting the difference between uh, colored in yellow or an orange color of individuals who do not support governing party parties, and then the greens support governing party parties. Uh, on news organizations, depending on how the news organizations present their information. And uh, Sweden was actually listed as the highest trustworthy news agency, with a difference of plus 24. Turkey came in plus 20. Hungary came in plus 20. Canada, our neighbors to the north, came in at plus 19. Colombia, plus 19. Germany, plus 18. Mexico, plus 18. Russia came in at plus 18. Italy, plus 17. Poland, plus 15. Nigeria, plus 13. Venezuela, plus 13. Greece, plus 13. South Africa, plus 12. UK, plus 12. Tunisia, plus 11. France, plus 9. Australia, negative 9. Israel, negative 26. And uh, I was surprised by that. And U.S. came at the uh, very bottom, uh, negative 34. And so uh, I, th- I found that interesting. And I think that uh, one thing we need to do, and I think this was mentioned last night in the uh, in the uh, presentation, is that we need to make sure that we as, as Christians understand first that we are Christians first, that we are other things second, okay? Um we should not put our political affiliation over our Christian adherence. Uh, our allegiance to Christ should hold prompt the first and foremost prominence in our lives, and that's what the first commandment's all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and be willing to, to uh, even criticize your own party if you need to. And by criticism, I'm not saying just, just to be a negative Nancy going out and just saying, well, I don't like this and I don't like that, but offer constructive criticism and hold um, our leaders, hold our political affiliations to the fire of the gospel. Hold the feet to the fire of the gospel and be willing to stand on just that. And in other news, I found on the uh, on, on this edition, latest edition of, of uh, Christianity uh, Today, uh, CT Magazine, Christianity Today, uh, they have on page 17 a chart of pastor's spouses. And I found this interesting. Uh, I just wanted to share this with you here because, uh, you know, obviously as we are, um, there's there's a lot of uh, 
emphasis, a lot of concern over the fact that that we don't have many younger pastors uh, coming to the the forefront to serve in church leadership, and this is something that uh, we need to pray that uh, that God would fix, that God would call younger ministers in the ministry to be able to meet the generational concerns uh, that that are being met in today's time. And so we as a church, I think, and I'm saying this as a pastor, but even if I weren't a pastor, this would, this would be something that I think I would emphasize. I would still emphasize on this podcast even if I weren't serving currently as a pastor. Uh, <clears throat> but it's, it's important that churches emphasize strong relationships between themselves and the pastor and also emphasize and, and, and stress the, the relationship that the pastor has with his wife. And, uh, and, and so a lot of times, pastors' wives take a beating, and, and they have to put up with a lot more than most people realize. And so uh, a statistic came out on page 17 of this edition of uh, the uh, latest edition of Christianity Today, which is the um, January-February 2018 edition of Christianity Today. This is how pastors' uh, spouses feel about their church. And uh, the question was presented to um, a survey of 720 spouses of Protestant pastors. The vast majority were women married to full-time ministers, two-thirds for at least 20 years, who feel their own personal call to ministry and enjoy their work. And here's a sampling of more than 100 questions they answered. And we'll give all the 100 questions. They give just a sampling Three questions concerning church, money, marriage, and family. And uh, the how pastors' spouses feel about their church, the question was presented, uh, the spouse not prepared for everything experienced at the church, uh, are you prepared for this? 45% said yes, 55% said no. And, um, and so obviously whenever a pastor is called to a church, we have to understand that while he is the one employed <clears throat> by the church, this pastor's wife holds a great deal of uh, importance in that ministry as well. Church members have resisted spouses' leadership. Uh, I- I'm really not surprised by this number. 72% said yes, 28% said no. If you're invoking change in a church, which change must come, Sometime, um, you know, but it, some, a lot of times it'll, it must be done gradually. But there are times when the Holy Spirit may lead uh, to to a change that must be immediate. And I think that we do need to to be a little bit quicker about accepting some changes in churches than what we do. We can't do church the way we did back in 1950, folks, and that's just the truth of the matter. Uh, but 72% said yes, the, the, the members have resisted spouses' leadership. Uh, 28 said no. Don't confide in people at church because of past betrayal. Now, this one, this one is, is very troubling to me, and there's a 50-50 split on that. I'm glad to see that it wasn't higher than 50%, but it's troubling that it was even that high. Um, how pastors' wives or spouses feel about their money uh, quote unquote, the church we serve takes good care of us, and this is a very good statistic here. Eighty-five percent said yes, the church takes good care of us. Only fifteen percent said no, and so that's that's a very. Um, I, th- I think that's a good statistic there. Uh, church compensation isn't enough to support family. 
Uh, 60% said yes, that it isn't enough to support family. 40% said no. Um, So interesting statistic there. Church offers perks for family like tuition or travel. 36% said yes, 64% said no. Folks, this is something, especially if you have a younger pastor, you may want to, if you have a church who has a younger pastor, I'm talking about in the 20s and and 30s, I just turned 40, but this may be something that you want to think about uh, helping out uh, the the pastor, especially if if he is a younger student. Uh, I'm talking about in Bible college or something like that, just starting off, um, uh, you know, and and this is something Tom Rayner said, that the modern pastor needs to be a learning pastor, a growing pastor. You can't just settle for what you know and not learn anything else. Even if you have a doctorate degree, you have to continue to learn. And um, it's important that pastors are involved in conferences and things of this nature so that they can consistently be equipped. Marriage. Uh, Congregation expects them to have a model marriage. 86% said yes, leaving 14% said no. This is this is something we need to be we need to take great care with as well because I think this may this may give added pressure to a, a pastor and his spouse's uh, relationship. So don't think that they're perfect because they're not. My wife and I have a wonderful relationship. Is it a perfect relationship? You know, she would agree with me saying, "Well, no, it's probably not perfect." Uh, but um, but we can't expect uh, the pastors and their spouses to have a perfect marriage. Spouse gives more attention to the church than to her needs. Here again, I think this is a good statistic. Only 37% said yes, 63% said no, and I think that's a good statistic because pastors, if you're listening to me, understand this and understand it clearly. Your first ministry is to your family, bar none. If it ever came to the point in time where the church came between the relationship that I have with my wife, then I would leave. I would leave the pastoral ministry. Uh, if that were to be expected, I would leave the pastoral ministry. Simply put, our first relationship, our first ministry, is to the ministry of the home. Okay, bar none. Um, plan quality time with spouse weekly or more. Uh, now, now, while the second, while this other one is, that gives more attention to the church than their needs was positive, this the third one is not. Spends quality time with spouse weekly or more. Only thirty percent said yes that they spend quality time together. Seventy percent said no. Of the family, uh, church commitments limit family time. Fifty nine percent said yes. Forty one percent said no. Again, there I think that uh, you know I know the church expects us to be there for most events and things of this nature but we got to remember to take quality time with our families because you only get one shot with with having your family children often don't want to attend church Uh, only 24 percent said yes they don't want to attend church 76 percent said no um and so that's a good sign congregation has a right to know what goes on in my family and i agree with this 77 percent said no they don't. They don't have to know everything that goes on in my family, and I would agree with that. Twenty-three percent says yes, and so uh, interesting statistic. And it take a little longer to go through that than I thought it would, but uh, I think it's interesting to um, to look at, to contemplate, uh, and, and not only for those of you who are pastors serving in church leadership and ministry, but also for those of you who are serving in churches and are wanting to know how better you can minister to your pastor, because understand this ministry thing is a two-way street. 
the pastor ministers to the church, but there are many ways that the church can minister to the pastor, okay, and in fact needs to minister to the pastor. Uh, I think there needs to be some grace extended to the pastors and, and their families, uh, not just saying this as a pastor, as an active pastor, but just say I would say this even if I weren't. Uh, there needs to be time given to a pastor and his family so that they can ensure that they have good quality time that they have together. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get to our main topic today, answering a question about the sovereignty of God from a non-Calvinist perspective on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. In his lifetime, Charles Spurgeon preached to over 10 million people, and his sermons have been changing millions more ever since. The CSB Spurgeon Study Bible weaves thousands of his words, notes, and excerpts into a rich daily study experience designed to bring to life the words of Charles Spurgeon alongside the words he loved and cherished his entire life. No one would be more surprised than Spurgeon to discover such a thing as the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible. And yet I think he would be both surprised and delighted. I would say that Spurgeon, as much as any preacher of an earlier era, has impacted my pastoral ministry, not in terms of the actual content itself, as much as the approach to Scripture, as it were, on his knees. It's a material that has stood the test of time, and so for it to be encapsulated in this one form uh, is, is just a terrific resource. And I think that what it's going to do is broaden the understanding of the Bible and, at the same time, give to people an understanding of Spurgeon. With a rich and beautiful design, the Spurgeon Study Bible introduces readers to the insights and wisdom of Spurgeon as a pastoral guide through the Bible that includes his writings, journal entries, lost sermons, and resources not available anywhere else. For someone who's barely heard the name Spurgeon, and perhaps has never even read anything that he wrote, the study Bible is going to be a revelation. Right there, page by page, book by book, they are introduced to Spurgeon at his very best. One of the things that will be immediately attractive to them is the fact that they will see Spurgeon's own handwriting within the prints of the Bible. So that not only do they have his comments, but they have his comments as they were originally written down. It is immediately appealing to the eye as well as, uh, you know, rewarding to the mind. For the student of uh, Scripture and the lover of Spurgeon, is a treasure trove. Throughout his life, Spurgeon gave himself to knowing, loving, and proclaiming the truth of Christ. Each edit and inclusion in the CSB Spurgeon Study Bible follows this passion, that every reader might get into the very heart of the Word of God. There's a certain element in this study Bible that causes the reader to feel almost that they are inhabiting the time of Spurgeon himself. It's clearly all about the one whom he longs to preach and proclaim. This is the great value that is to be found in the material. I hope that this study Bible is going to introduce a whole new group of people to Spurgeon himself, 
and to the influence that he had, and that because the heart of man is the same no matter where he finds himself or she finds herself. And Spurgeon's timeliness, indeed his timelessness, is that. Experience God's Word and the legacy of Charles Spurgeon. To find out more, visit csbspurgeonstudybible.com. Welcome back to the Bellator Christie Podcast. We uh, hope you will go check out uh, the CSB Spurgeon Study Bible. If you're interested in that, uh, you can go to bellatorchristie.com. I posted a review uh, of, a, of a copy that was sent to me by uh, B&H Publishing. And uh, do appreciate uh, Broadman and Holbin Publishing. Uh, great publishing company. And uh, it's, in fact, I have a few other uh, books I need to uh, do a review for them and plan on getting that up and going here sometime pretty soon. Um, but anyhow, we hope you do go check that out. Want to uh, direct your attention to a, a question we received at uh, BellatorChristie.com by a gentleman by the name of Jason. And we thank Jason. Jason's had some wonderful questions uh, that he has presented uh, on on the on the website, I believe this is, if this is the same gentleman I'm thinking of uh, that he has posted some questions before. Uh, looking through here, maybe he has it. Uh, maybe I've confused him with someone else. But anyhow, uh, he is uh, he asked a wonderful question, and he said, uh, "Dear Pastor Brian, can you talk about God's sovereignty, providence, and protection from a non-Calvinist perspective?" God bless. And so I want to do take a few moments uh, to do just that. So I want to kind of combine all of this together because when we talk about God's sovereignty, uh, His providence and protection is included. And I would I would to give a quick answer to this, I would say that um, the, the non-Calvinist, especially the Molinist, would uh, hold the same viewpoint that the Calvinist would about. God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign. The only difference between the two perspectives, quite honestly, is the fact that uh, non-Calvinists often place more emphasis on human response and the importance of human activity in the God's plan. Now, did God, does God have to have us doing certain things? Well, obviously no, but uh, God has made us in His image to take part in this grand plan that He has. And so, um, and I would also say that I think that uh, there's a bit of confusion that happens in this regard because, honestly, I, I get irritated when I hear people say that uh, Arminianism and Molinism are, uh, as they put it, Pelagian or semi-Pelagianism, and that's just simply not the truth. Pelagian, the, the heresy, uh, and, and going back to this for those of you who may be new to the to theology. Uh, Pelagius was an individual who con- who confronted Augustine, or Augustine confronted him, over this issue about salvation. And the whole point of the issue, the whole point of, the, of his perspective was that Jesus was the perfect person. He was a perfect son of God, and that he, he gave us an example of what we can do. So his big heresy was simply to say that we can save ourselves. Uh, that we don't need the grace of Christ, 
we, we can simply be perfect as Christ was perfect and be saved. We can, we, uh, or, or we choose God. God does not choose us. And by saying that, he, he is where his heresy comes in is he is saying that uh, God doesn't have any prevenient grace where his Holy Spirit is calling individuals to salvation. It's simply a person just takes interest, for instance, in Christianity and says, hey, I want to be like Christ, and so they just basically save themselves. Christ was an example, and they just follow his example, and, and that was his viewpoint. Well, Augustine says, no, you know, obviously the Holy Spirit moves upon an individual and if you look at the early Augustine, Augustinian writings, you see that he was open to this uh, understanding uh, that uh, a person responds to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the, the Holy Spirit calls, the Holy Spirit gives, we simply receive or we reject. And, and that's essentially what separates non-Calvinist ideologies from Calvinist, uh, Calvin, or more particularly Hardcore Calvinism, uh, and I make that, or, or rather determinism, because not all Calvinists are opposed to that viewpoint. And so let me also say in the, to this in this regard that Jacob Arminius was actually a trained Calvinist. Many people miss this point. Jacob Arminius was a trained Calvinist who saw and who took issue not necessarily with Calvin himself, but with the um, Dortians. Uh, the individuals who were hardcore followers of Calvin, who developed the tulip, uh, or, or any, eventually the Senate of Dort condemned, you know, Jacob Arminius. But anyhow, um, but but they took they they adhered to this this um, tulip, this this five point tulip, and so uh, tulip plan meaning total depravity, unconditional, unlimited election, unconditional election, um, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so Jacob Arminius took issue with those, with those that perspective, not necessarily with Calvinism in general, but that viewpoint of Calvinism. And so that's where Arminianism arose. Now, Molinism is is a lot different than than um, than than Arminianism in in some ways. Now they do share a lot of similarities, uh, but Arminianism simply says that. Um, God knows by looking in the future who will receive and who won't receive, and that was the basis upon his election. And his election was a corporate election, uh, meaning that he, he, his. When you read in Romans eight nine, uh, Romans nine, and particularly that 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 election was talking about electing a people, electing a people, and the plan of salvation was given to those whom. Who, who would receive the grace of God? Who would respond positively to the grace of God? And so God is doing all the work. God is doing all the work here. It's His gift. It's His promise. It's, it's everything is done of Him. But it's by simple foreknowledge that God looks in the future and says, well, I know person A will respond to my call, so I elect him to salvation, whereas person B won't, and so I, I will not elect that person to salvation. And I still think that that's, that's a good option. I still think that's a good option. But Molinism goes a little bit deeper. Molinism says that uh, God has three forms of knowledge, that God has um, what's called natural knowledge, and that's the knowledge of the way things could be. It's the potentialities that exist. 
he has free knowledge, which is somewhat similar to that simple foreknowledge where he knows the ways things will be. And in the middle of that, between natural and free, you have this middle knowledge, which is God knows what free creatures would do when given certain circumstances. And so that is Molina's definition of this. Okay, and so in this, this actually comes, Molina says that uh, this comes from within God. Um, he knows that certain cognition of some future uh, contingents that depend on human free choice but have neither, neither have existed nor ever will exist in reality and that hence do not exist in eternity either. Therefore, it is not simply because future contingents exist outside their cause in eternity that God knows them with certainty. Okay, um, that's not what I was looking for. Uh, okay, here, here we go. Molina here uses the term natural knowledge and to, to refer to middle knowledge, but he says that um, that God comprehends himself, and in himself he comprehends all the things that exist eminently in him, and thus the free choice of any creature whom he is able to make through his omnipotence. That is to say, God eternally knows everything about everything he creates, including the free decisions a free agent would make, the circumstances leading to that decision, and whether or not a free agent would make certain decision as opposed to the decisions not made. Okay, so the question is, okay, I'm using all of that as a backdrop. The question is, how does a non-Calvinist view God's sovereignty, God's providence, as opposed to a, to a regular Calvinist, and I would say there's not much of a difference. There, there's really not much of a difference. The only difference there is is that the non-Calvinist places, I think, more emphasis, and there may, I may have some Calvinist friends who would disagree with me on this point, especially if they're more hardline Calvinists. Well, well, I'm sorry, if they're not hardline Calvinists. I have some friends who would disagree, may disagree with me on this point. But... Um, but I think that the biggest difference between the two is that is that God knows freely the decisions we're going to make. And through that, he has placed individuals in certain times and in certain places to do certain things. Uh, it's not that he wills or he, he, he desires people to do bad things. But through that, through the willing response to his grace given... People can know, uh, or excuse me, uh, God knows what people will do, and people can can choose the grace of God to help them through circumstances. And I think when we look at the grand scheme of things, we're going to see that that uh, God arranged p- to put people people in certain places at certain times, and this is all part of His sovereignty. In fact, Thomas Oden, a Wesleyan, who wrote, and by the way, if you're looking for a good non-Calvinist commentary. His systematic, he has three volumes of systematic theology, and they have been just absolutely tremendous. I would highly recommend him uh, to anybody. But uh, he, t- he talks about the, the instances in Scripture where it, t- where it addresses God repenting of certain things. 
And he quote, uh, quoting him, he says, do they imply a fundamental change in the divine being or essence or in the divine plan? No. The scriptures employ an anthropomorphic metaphors and analogies to speak of God's free responsiveness to human needs amid changing historical circumstances. They represent God in human terms as responsively dealing with new human contingencies by taking ever new initiatives and thereby relinquishing older ones to which there had been inadequate human human response. Now listen, that, that's interesting. And this actually comes from Tertullian um, um, and, and many others. Uh, you can see John of Damascus says something of this sort as well. But such passages never imply that something has changed in the essential being of God or that any divine attributes have mutated. What may appear to be a change of God's mind may, upon closer inspection, be a different phase of the unfolding of the divine plan. God's sovereign freedom is able to will changes within the contingencies of history. This is not a contradiction of the divine reliability. Rather, the execution of the divine purpose rather the execution of the divine purpose is firm precisely because it is responsive to temporal contingencies. And this comes also from uh, Augustine and Julian of Norwich. Uh, the divine constancy, he says, is often referred to in the Psalms, from age to age everlasting thou art God. Creaturely purposes, actions, and intentions have a beginning and an end, but God's character does not change. The truth of God does not change. In dealing flexibly with the changing scenes of history, God remains faithful to his own unchanging will to sustain, love, and redeem creation. So, and he goes on to say that uh, immutability is sometimes stated in wooden Aristotelian terms that wholly lack these vital energies of the biblical witness and God, to God's constancies. Uh, one of the most persistent criticisms of classical Christian theism by the process theologian is what they regard as an ordinate exaggeration of this immutability, making it to appear that God is unresponsive to human need. Overestimating the stranglehold of Aristotle upon the ancient ecumenical Christian tradition, recent theologians, he says, may have underestimated the, uh, the uh, perduring counter-Aristotelian influences of the tradition of exegesis of the Psalms, Isaiah, Paul, and John. The divine immutability of purpose and essence does not mean that God is unresponsive or incapable of interaction, but that the deeper intentionality of the will of God, the chesed, uh, in Hebrew, God's unfailing holy love is sure and unchanging. That Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever does not imply divine unresponsiveness or that the living Christ whom we meet in the sacrament is incapable of relating to us. Rather, it celebrates that the same one whom we met at the Lord's table uh, or last Easter will there be will be there the next time we break bread. God's compassions do not fail they are new every morning. Scripture marvels at the constant newness of God. It is ever it is ever new precisely because the steadfast love of God does not change. So I don't think he is uh, in this arguing against the classical approach at all. In fact, I think he's defending the classical Christian approach. That's what he does in the three volumes of his systematic theology coming from a Wesleyan viewpoint. But the point is, is that uh, non-Calvinists hold a very strong view, or at least those who have done their work in theology, I'd say, 
hold a very strong view of God's sovereignty, understanding the fact that that while we are making choices, God knew the choice that we were going to make. Now, does that mean that we're not free free to truly make a choice? Of course we're free. Knowledge does not impede one's ability to respond to the grace of God or to choose X versus Y as we have this limited limited, um, libertarian freedom. But at the same time, we do have the ability to choose under certain circumstances. We do have the ability to choose certain things in our lives and respond in different ways. But God knew through his middle knowledge the uh, the choices that were going to be made before the foundation of the world was even set. So I would even say, at least in the Molinist perspective, and I think that Arminian perspective can have the, have the same view, but I think that this view actually elevates the the sovereignty of God, understanding the fact that we have been placed in a certain time at a certain place to do certain things for the God whom saved us, who saved us, for the, for the God who loves us and, uh, and, and, and holds a purpose for us, who holds that ever-constant, consistent chesed love that we find in the Old Testament, the agape love we find in the New. So I would say, to answer your question, that, um, and I hope this answers, and if you have any further, uh, need any further details uh, about the, the response given here, uh, Jason, I would encourage you just to, to submit another question to Bellator Christie, and we'll try to answer that as, as best as we can. Just remember, folks, the world may change, people may change, societies may change, but God never changes. And that's a great truth that we can find in Scripture and uh, something we should adhere to, um, something to which we should adhere and to which we should accept every day of our lives. All right, well, that's been uh, that's going to do it for, for this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. Coming up next week, God willing, we're going to hope to have with us uh, Dr. Amy Downey. We don't know exactly what we're going to be discussing. We're working on a few details about a possible podcast coming up next week. So, God willing, we will be with you next time uh, with Dr. Amy Downey. Uh, all right, again, we thank you for joining us on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. God bless you, and remember... Uh, the truth shall set you free, and we'll see you back next time that we step into the arena of ideas. on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of bellatorchristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi podcast is a production of bellatorchristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. 
be sure to visit bellatorchristi.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas.